If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 15 is where we're at this morning, and uh, thank you to Kelly for reading those verses for us. All three of the parables in Luke 15 are about things that are lost and then were found, and so we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 today, the lost sheep, then we'll look at the lost coin, and next week is Mother's Day. Men, next week is Mother's Day. Woo! You're welcome. All right. And uh, on Mother's Day, we'll look at the parable of the prodigal son next week. And so uh, hopefully between the, the two weeks, we're going to learn some really cool things about God's heart for uh, those who are lost. And so as we're talking about things that are lost and things that are found, think about a time in your heart, a t- your heart, a, a time in your life when you lost something. You lost your phone, you got freaked out, you got upset, you got angry, you got frustrated, you lost your keys, you lost a wallet. You lost a piece of jewelry. When I was in college, uh, a guy went to, to propose to his girlfriend. And uh, they were outside the, the dorm room. And where I went to college, there was snow from basically like Thanksgiving until March. And so he went to propose to his girlfriend right outside of, the, uh, outside of the dorm there. And he got down on his knee. And in the melee that ensued, whatever happened there, the ring got thrown into a snowdrift. And uh, I, I think that they said that they found it the next spring when the snow all melted. But they were like searching and hundreds of girls, okay, a few girls were all out together digging through the snow and trying to find this ring because it was that which was lost and they needed to find it, right? It seems like we've all lost stuff and experienced the emotions that go along with like losing something, looking for something, and then finding something. And it seems to me that the more uh, valuable the lost thing, the more excited we get when it's found. That seems about right, isn't it? So if you lose your phone, you're like, you find it, you're like, okay, that's, I'm really excited. Have any of you ever lost a kid? Have we lost a kid? Uh, parents are looking at each other like, I, maybe, I think so, yes, right? Yeah, yeah, right? So we were at Lindsay's, pa- uh, Lindsay's brother's house this past, uh, last Sunday, having a little pool party in the 60 degrees and rain. It was a great time. But we were there, and they started to recount this story about how they lost one of the cousins. They lost Natalie, and, and Sarah and Natalie were at the grocery store. Sarah's the mom. Sarah's shopping, and they're at the checkout, and Natalie goes over to one of these, like, book carousels, and she's looking, and she wanted to read this romance novel. She's a little kid at this point, and so her mom says, put that back. You can't look at that, and so Sarah's checking out, pays, and turns around, no Natalie. And, like, anarchy ensues, right? Because you're mama bear, and you know, like, what is happening? My kid has been abducted. This is not a good thing. So Sarah's telling the story. She's running around in the parking lot, just, you know, looking for vans, and it's not going to be a good thing. And she's trying to, f- to figure out where the kid is. They locked the store down. She actually said they, like, locked the store down, locked all the doors, made people stay there. They're announcing it over the loudspeaker, trying to find Natalie, and she's panicking. She's calling Josh. I can't find Natalie. You need to get here. And they're freaked out. The whole grocery store, everybody's looking. And, and finally, one of the, like, associates, one of the clerks or somebody is, is walking through the, uh, the, like, toilet paper and, and the paper goods aisle. And they realize that Natalie was hiding behind, like, one of those big stacks of paper towels. And she's got the romance novel. And she's doing her thing. <laughs> so when that happens, as a parent, like, a few things, go, emotions go through your mind, right? The first one is, like, Thank you, Jesus. Oh, my child that is lost is now found. Thank you, Jesus. Simultaneously, I will send you to Jesus. Ah, absolutely. So we all know what it's like to experience like that panic of losing something, but then the rejoicing of finding something, especially something valuable. 
when Jesus told parables, when he told these stories that we're studying, he did that on purpose. Like, he could have just been like, hey, there was a lost guy, and then he got found. But when Jesus tells these stories, he's, he's invoking our emotions in reading the Bible and in understanding the, the uh, teachings that he's giving, is he wants us to feel something. We don't want to overinterpret these parables. Like when I start talking about a lost sheep and a shepherd lost a sheep and a lady lost a coin, uh, fear not. John 10 says that Jesus ain't losing anybody, okay? We're not the word that like Jesus isn't like this lost shepherd. It's like, I can't find him. I don't know where they went. He's not like the lost mother who's like, lock down the store. Someone stole my kid. The point of the parables will be for us to understand Jesus' heart for lost people and the rejoicing that happens when the lost are found. That's why he's going to tell these two stories. And I'm going to say this, that we're going to use the term lost today to refer to people. That's not popular. That's not politically correct. I could get canceled for saying lost, for, for deigning to suggest that someone may in fact be lost and, and perishing in their lostness. By suggesting even someone who's in this room might be lost in relationship to, to Jesus. That somebody who's watching online might be lost. Like, that's not a popular concept. But I would submit to you this. When I go hiking or snowshoeing in the mountains, I leave a, 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 uh, an itinerary for my wife and for the girls. And I tell them where I'm going to park and what trail I'm going to be on and how long I'm going to be gone and when to call 911. If I leave and I go out and I'm out for two, you know, I'll go out for the day and then I'll come back. If I leave and I go out there and I fall into a, a tree well or I break a bone or something happens and my wife's back home and she's like, well, it's like 3.30 in the morning and it says to call 911 if he's not home by 6 p.m. But I don't really want to offend him by calling him lost, so I'm just going to like let this thing play out. I'm not excited about that, am I? Right? When I am lost... I want my wife to be like, he's lost, and call 911 and say, he's lost, and we need to go find him. I want us to understand lost in that way. This is not religious people, as we'll see, looking down on non-religious people. We would understand from Scripture that we are all lost without Jesus. And so to call someone lost, to actually like, use that terminology is actually the most loving thing that we can do. Because as all of you women know who drive with your husbands, a lost person that won't admit their loss is the worst thing in the world. It's the most frustrating thing, right? You're driving around, you don't know you're lost. You're in real danger. So we talk about lost people. We talk about lost people in a very loving way. So in Luke 15, verses 1 through 10, Jesus will tell two of these three stories to get a, a, across his point about his heart for lost people. And we'll set it up in verses 1 and 2. Parables are Jesus telling stories in response to something that's going on. And we find out what's going on in verses 1 and 2. And it says this, Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Many uh, preachers and Bible commentators have pointed out that there are two types of people represented here in Jesus' audience. And Jesus is telling this story, and there's an audience of probably a lot of people around as he's telling this story. And he points out two groups. The, the first group is the religious people, and the second group is the rebellious people. 
There are those two groups of people in this text, and I would say that there are those two groups of people in life. There are religious people and there are rebellious people. In the context of this story, both the religious people and the rebellious people are both lost people. So like, like hang on to that, okay? Because what can tend to happen sometimes is that we uh, bifurcate these two. We like pull them apart and we say religious people are good people and rebellious people are bad people. Religious people are righteous people and rebellious people, uh, they're like totally non-righteous, right? The religious people are the ones who do all the right things and the rebellious people are the ones who do all the wrong things. And what Jesus is always saying in his ministry is that you can be religiously lost and rebelliously lost. And you're both just as lost. In this story, it's interesting because it says the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to him. While the Pharisees and the uh, scribes were grumbling about him. I would say that we all tend toward one of those two places. That we all tend toward either religion or rebellion. For some of us, we, like, we grew up in a church right we grew up memorizing the verses we grew up going to all the activities we grew up with the i'm there every time the doors are open we grew up doing all the do's and don'ting all the don'ts we're really religious religion doesn't save anybody keeping the rules and following the rules doing anything that we think we can do to gain acceptance by god doesn't work it just makes us really religious Others of us maybe grew up rebellious. I didn't go to church. I didn't have Christian family. I didn't have parents that, that took me to church. I just kind of did my own thing, lived for myself. Maybe some of us are, are still doing that. That we all tend in one of these two directions, religious or rebellious. But what we need to do is make sure that rather than thinking, well, I'm in this camp, so I'm better than this camp, or I'm in this camp, so I'm freer than in this camp, we need to put ourselves all in the same boat and say without Jesus, we're lost. Religious people and rebellious people both lost people I find it interesting that in this text as well as the ministry of Jesus that the rebellious people seem to be the ones who tend toward Jesus like over and over again and I'll read two stories later in the sermon about specific times that that happened where the, the rebellious people the tax collectors, the sinners, the bad quote bad people tended to draw toward Jesus and in verse uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, it says the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And I want to draw your attention up just a, just a line to, to the end of chapter 14, Luke 14. And Jesus has told this little story, just a kind of little word picture about salt. And then at the end of it, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's a, an intentional connection between here at the end of 14 and the hearing that's going on in chapter 15, verse 1. They're like right there together. You remember, as we did the parable of the sower, we talked about um, reasons, the purposes for the parables. And one of the things that parables did when Jesus taught them is that for people whose hearts were open to truth, that the parables exposed truth. The people whose hearts were closed to truth, the parables hid truth. Who is hearing the truth in this passage? Is it the religious people? Is it the people that go to church all the time? Is it the people who know all the verses? Is it the people who can tell you all the do's and all the don'ts? The people are, who have ears to hear in this text are the rebellious people. The people who didn't grow up in church. The people who don't know all the rules and know all the answers. That Jesus says they're the ones who have the ears to hear. Sometimes it's easy to hear so much that we just stop hearing. Do you know that? 
You count up the amount of time if you if you grew up in church and sat in Sunday school and did Sunday evening and ba- you know back when church was church they had Sunday evening services and they had Wednesday evening services. That was back when church was church. Now it's just church light. We have small groups where you get to eat, all right? But you count up all the amount of time that you spent listening to sermons, listening to people teach about the Bible, and then think like, how has that shaped me? For some of us, it's shaped our lives in great ways. But James tells us in in his uh, letter that that we can hear a whole lot and not do, and it means nothing. It's just empty, worthless religion. The hearers here were the rebellious people. You see, the rebellious people were drawn to Jesus in, in this text and throughout his ministry. The religious people, they grumbled about Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They got grumpy. They got frustrated. They got upset. They got threatened. They got offended. You know those people who are always grumpy and always upset and always threatened? You know those people in church? They're the religious people. They're always grumpy, right? Religion leads to grumpiness. I'll talk about that more later. (laughs) I think it's biblical. Some of you are like, that's not funny. I'm grumpy anyway. Uh, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying This man receives sinners and eats with them For the Pharisees, here was the deal Proximity was a problem for them Okay, For these very religious people Who their, their life was And their identity was bound up In what they did and didn't do religiously Proximity to non-religious people was a problem meaning being close to non-religious people was a problem as a matter of fact the law the rules that they made up said that if they got too close to those people they would be unclean right they thought that that sinners had like some spiritual covid it was like they've got covid i gotta stay away from them it's spiritual covid it's highly contagious if i get close enough that i can get in that like six foot arc of breathing and they breathe it on me it's in the droplets the sin will come on to me and that will be it there's no vaccine there's no mask i can wear i just have to stay away they were social distance spiritual social distancers does that make sense have you heard this before yeah that was the pharisees And their fear drove them away from people who weren't like them. Their fear of what might happen if I got too close, or their fear of what, you know, I might catch if I get too close to these people. They're not like me. They watch different shows on Netflix than me. At least what everybody else knows that I watch on Netflix, right? They post different things on their social media than I post on mine. I only post verses. They post bad things that aren't verses, right? I keep the commandments. They break the commandments. I got to stay far away from them. For the religious people, getting near the rebellious people was risky. But what did Jesus do? It says that he welcomed them to the table. At the end of verse 2, it says, This man receives sinners and eats with them. There was something in that day that was called table fellowship. Okay? We do this around here. Do you know what we call it? Just said it. Come on. Come on, Baptist, Presbyterian, it doesn't matter. What's it called? Potlucks. Yes, thank you. Church people. Table fellowship equals potlucks, right? You get the table out. You get the stuff set. You get it down. I got to tell you guys something. I just talked to Mark and Cindy. We're going to have some amazing barbecue. I didn't talk to you, Mark, but you're in. We're going to have an amazing barbecue on July 2nd. Mark's over there like we are. No. We're going to have a great church barbecue on July 2nd because it's biblical. 
and we're going to call everybody together, and we're going to hang out, we're going to eat amazing food. Hopefully there's going to be some bouncy houses for the kids, maybe one for the dads. I'm thinking about a shooting range. I don't know if that's legal in the city limits. We're going to have a barbecue, and we're going to do table fellowship together. So, so in that day, I've got to get a sip, sorry. Just water, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully. But in that day, table fellowship meant that you welcomed and recognized people. We talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago when we were talking about banquets. And we said, like, the parties that you got invited to and the people you invited to your parties, that said a lot about your status and who you welcomed and who you were friends with. That's table fellowship. So you imagine we have a big, you know, July 2nd party, and we're out here, and we've got the table set up, the barbecue, the baked beans, all the good stuff is there. The dessert tables are set up like they're supposed to be, and we're ready to rumble. And then, like, some of the neighbors start coming around, right? And they've got beer. And it's not even real beer. It's light beer. And they come, and they're like, we want to be part of your party. And we're like, that's light beer. You can't come without re- You can't come with beer, right? That's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees said, you're not invited to our parties. We might catch what you have. We might become bad people like you. You can't come to our party, but what did Jesus say? Don't bring the light beer, but come to the party. No, I'm just kidding. Right? Jesus invited them to the party. As a matter of fact, when it says he receives sinners and eats with them, they were drawing near to him. This was a regular part of the ministry of Jesus. There's an occasion in Luke 5 and another in Luke 19 that I'll read in a few minutes that show that this was a regular part of Jesus' life, that he was welcoming and recognizing, that, that the idea of table fellowship meant in a, a level of friendship. And this was with rebellious people. This was with the bad people. And here's what I need you to hear, is that some churches and some Christians have gone all the way to one side where they say, we're in the fortress Those people don't belong in the fortress. Only people like us belong in the fortress. We come in the fortress, we raise up the the gate, and we shoot arrows over the fortress at the people over there. Jesus doesn't like or want anything to do with those people, okay? And that's one way. There are other churches that have gone, and Christians who have gone to this side. And God is love. God wouldn't do anything to harm anyone. God doesn't have any standards. Everyone's loved and welcomed and affirmed and accepted and included. And and we wouldn't want to be exclusive in any way. And they've compromised. Jesus did neither of those things. When Jesus came to the table and had fellowship with those people, there was welcoming, there was recognition, and there was friendship. There was not acceptance. That we can acknowledge people. That we can have friends, we can be friends with people without accepting their lifestyle and affirming that lifestyle, right? We can accept people for who they are while not affirming how they are. You know that's an important distinction. We studied Genesis chapter 1 so we would really know who people are. That they're individuals created in the image of God. Worthy of dignity and respect. How we are relates to our sin and our sin nature and the choices that we make and the things that we do and that Jesus accepted people for who they were while he didn't affirm all of how they were. That's an important distinction even as we've talked about before when you're talking about like the transgender issues and things like that is that you can change how you are. You can transition how you are. You can't change or transition who you are. And people are looking to all of those kind of things to find hope and significance and fulfillment. 
And Jesus is sitting at the table saying, there's one place that you find hope and significance and fulfillment and identity. It's an understanding who you are. It's not in changing how you are. And so Jesus welcomed these people to the, the table. A couple of questions that came to my mind I want to leave with you. They plagued me all week, so I'll plague you with them now. But really, these are like heavy questions. I, I, the first thing as I was reading this was like, what drew people to Jesus? Like, what was it about Jesus that drew people to him that were really not... I would imagine that Jesus, the, the rabbi, would have drawn all the religious people, right? He's like the great speaker, and then they all come, and they take lots of notes, and they get his autograph on the books, and he's got a blog and a YouTube channel, and all the religious people love Jesus. Is that what we see? Right? No. What was it that drew those non-religious those rebellious people they're like always coming toward jesus like i would challenge you to read the gospels and try to see what was it about jesus that drew those people to him that's have something to do with his heart i think like his heart for them and his love for them a question that's related to that is this why aren't the kind of people who were regularly drawn to jesus regularly drawn to me i'm saying like me like not hypothetically me meaning you all Right? Like, I'm asking myself this week. I'm looking at my friends, the people I spend time with. I'm like, I wonder why it is that more people that were, like, the people were drawn to Jesus aren't drawn to me. Do I not have the heart of Jesus for lost people? And then the third question that's related to both of those is, like, what's going on in my heart if I grumble about lost people more than I pray for them or more than I reach out to them? Man, like these are the, I'm wrestling with these this week I'm thinking about like my thoughts toward other people lost people people who I know have have a relationship of some sort with who I know don't know the Lord and I'm like why do I not have a greater heart for these people that's why Jesus tells these two stories that we're going to look at he, he's going to expose this religious attitude toward lost people by showing his heart for lost people and I hope that we catch a little bit of Jesus' heart for those people. Verse 3. Verses 3 through 8, he tells about the lost sheep. And it says, He told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? I need to ask you to be honest with me for a second. How many of you have heard this story before? It's called the parable of the lost sheep. Everybody who's been to church. Now, this is the honesty part. How many of you, like, have ever felt bad for the 99? I mean, I know I have. I have felt bad for the 99 before. i got a couple honest people. You're like, there's 99 of them. And this one knucklehead sheep takes off, gets lost. He's probably out snowshoeing like a dummy by himself, right? He shouldn't have even been out there by himself. You always take a partner. I've always felt bad, like those 99, and their shepherd leaves them, they're out in the open country, he leaves them with a pack of wolves to watch them, and like it's just terrible, and he goes after the one. I think I can tend to get the 99 attitude. Hey, what about me? Come back here, take care of me, love me, accept me, help me, church is for me. Oh. Meanwhile, Jesus is out after the one, right? The shepherd in the story. He's out after the one. Here's one of the things that will, like, it, it made me feel a lot better this week, is that typically in that day, they didn't just go out like one shepherd with a hundred sheep. Seems like a lot. 
one of the things that they would do actually is probably one guy didn't own all 100 sheep. A family, an extended family would own a bunch of sheep or even a village would own a bunch of sheep and they would hire a few guys or better than that, we know what Jesus said about the hirelings, right, in, in John, but better than that, that they would have like a member of their family or a couple members of their family watch over all of the sheep together. So when the guy left those 99 sheep, most likely, in Jesus, as Jesus is telling the story, the people who are thinking about it would have understood. He didn't just tell those 99 to just go take a hike and go take care of the one. That those 99 were left safe, they were left cared for, they were left there. And then the one was the one that was gravely in need. And Jesus went off after, the shepherd went off after that one sheep. So I hope that makes you feel better about the 99. We got a little, like, okay. That made me feel better this week, so... If you don't learn anything else, there's that. But it says that he goes off after the one that is lost until he finds it, right? You can imagine if my sister-in-law, Sarah, loses Natalie in the store, turns around, looks. I can't find her anywhere. I, she'll turn up. I'm just going to head home. You guys let me know. If she turns up, let me know, right? you imagine that? She's like, well... I don't know, I scanned the parking lot, I didn't see any vans, guys with aviator sunglasses, bags of candy. I think she's okay, right? I know, like it's Bonnie Lake and it's nighttime, but we're, we're going to, no. You look until you find, you search diligently. You're not stopping. It says he searches until he finds it. And then when he has found it, what does he do? I, I don't know about you, but if it's me, I'm ticked. I've got the sheep whip, I think that's what they, oh, a rod and a staff, that's what they were, right? I've got the rod and the staff, and I'm like, I'm using them both on the sheep. You're an idiot! You're never going to run away again, because you won't be able to run away again! I think most of us, if we're honest, we would be like, you know what? I would be frustrated, I'd be upset, that sheep is going to feel my wrath. Jesus is telling a story to show his heart for lost people. When he found it, he laid it on his shoulders. Now, let's just clear something up about sheep real quick, okay? I know you've all seen the pictures. If you went to Sunday school, the flannel graph is coming back to mind. When you see the picture of Jesus carrying the sheep, there's way too much white going on. And I'm not talking race. Okay, they get Jesus a little bit too white too. But I'm talking about the fact that he's got on this glowing white robe, and there's a glowing white sheep. How many of you have seen sheep? Like actual sheep. Are they white? Are they glowing white? No. No, our friends, the trunks, they've got, they went to church here. Uh, they moved to Centralia. They've got a hobby farm. I told you a few weeks ago. They have sheep, and we were there when the sheep were birthed, and they actually named one Charlotte. They're naming all their sheep with a C this year, and Charlotte was there. And so Charlotte now has a namesake. I can say I've been at the birth of two Charlottes. I'm happy about that, Right? But we're, I'm looking at the sheep, and I'm like, that sheep is not white. It is very off-white, and I don't think that's all mud. And that sheep does not smell good. And it's not like eight pounds, by the way, right? Sheep could be like a hundred pounds. And they wallow around in the dirt, and they smell, and they stink, and they're nasty, and they're disgusting. And they wander off, and they get lost. And according to my research, and since I researched it, you have to listen to it. They would get lost, and they would just stand there when they realized that they were lost. Or they would just, like, fall over. And lay down, and they wouldn't get up for anybody or any reason. And one of the things that could happen, this is the too much research part, 
one of the things that could happen is like they fell over, and if they rolled over too far, these gases would build up in their system, and they could actually implode and die. I told you it's too much information, and it has nothing to do with the sermon. And you'll remember one thing today. That's not good. But I want you to, in all of that, we laugh, but honestly, I want you to see the helplessness of this sheep, right? He's in danger, and he's laying there. And the shepherd comes, not with this rod and this staff of anger, but comes with a heart of compassion and picks up the sheep and shoulders the nasty, disgusting, heavy burden of the sheep on his shoulders, maybe a hundred pounds worth of sheep, and walks what could have been miles, not on a paved trail, back home. That's the heart of Jesus in pursuit of lost people. And then it continues in verse 6. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. There's rejoicing. There's excitement. Not only is the shepherd rejoicing, but the people around him are rejoicing. And as Jesus tells this story, remember, he is attacking a grumbling attitude toward a group of people that a group of people have toward lost things. It's intentional in the text that they were grumbling. And Jesus says that there is rejoicing. And then it gets better in verse 7. It says, there, just so, the interpretation of the parable, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And he's talking to this group of people who think that they need no repentance because they're so righteous. And he says there's a party in heaven every time a lost person is found, every time a sinner repents and comes home, every time a, a, a person finds Jesus. We would say every time a person becomes a Christian, there is celebrating in heaven. Meanwhile, the religious people just get grumpy. He tells another story. This is the parable of the lost coin. What woman having ten silver coins... If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. Chances are none of you have lost a sheep, but maybe some of you have lost some money, right? You lose your wallet. You're like, oh, no, all my credit cards are in there, and there's unlimited money on all those, and what am I going to do, right? I lost a couple hundred bucks, and I just can't find it. I know I had it. It must have been my kids. My wife probably spent it. I need it. I got to find it. Like, I know that we have a variety of socioeconomic status in here, but I would submit that if, you know, if there was like $500 and any one of us lost it, that none of us are of such means that we would just be like, meh, it's $500. Meh, big deal. Right? It'll turn up. I don't know about you. I'm a pastor. Right? I'm getting out the vacuum cleaner. I'm getting out everything I possibly can. I'm tearing stuff apart. I know I put it in here somewhere. Suit jackets, pants. Searching diligently. Why? Because of the value of the thing. Thought diligently till she found it. Verse 9, when she had found it, she called together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In the parable of the lost sheep, the one was worth the pursuit. Right? The one sheep was worth the pursuit. The one sheep was worth the burden of the carrying. And the one sheep was worth the celebration. In this story of the coin, this one coin was valuable enough to be searched for. 
And this one coin was valuable enough to be celebrated. You see what Jesus is saying about his heart for lost people? So the audience for this parable, in summary, the audience for this parable is, again, these self-righteous, grumpy religious people who aren't excited that Jesus is hanging out with intrigued, rebellious people. People are coming to Jesus. The lost things here represent lost people. People who don't have a relationship with Jesus. And again, both religious people and rebellious people are lost people without Jesus. The shepherd who is willing to search and carry the burden and then rejoices. The, the shepherd and the woman who searches. And then all of that rejoicing, all of that represents Jesus' heart for lost people. Wanted to say that like that neighbor that you have who doesn't know the Lord and lives like he doesn't know the Lord or she doesn't know the Lord, that coworker that you have that is anti everything that you stand for, that family member, that friend, your, the people that your kid plays sports with or whatever. Like Jesus has a heart for those people. While religious people grumble, heaven throws a party. Take your Bible and go to Luke 19. I want you guys to, to turn there. So I want you to see. These are, I'm going to read you two actual stories. So Jesus told a, a parable. But at other places in his life and his ministry, here's, here's some actual stories. If you feel like singing as I read this story, please feel free to do so. It says in Luke 19.1 that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. You know what kind of a man he was? Thank you. Hey, if you've not been to church before, we are a little weird. I'll admit it. Okay. It goes back a long time. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector. Like, he was the mafia boss. Those other guys that we've been talking about, the regular tax collectors, they were the underlings. Zacchaeus was the mafia leader, right? It says he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a? For the Lord he wanted to see. And Jesus came to the place, he looked up, and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Table fellowship, friendship, recognition. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, the good guys, the religious guys, here they come, when they saw it, what did they do? They grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And sinners have sinned covid Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10, For the Son of Man came to what? To seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was an example of a rebellious person that Jesus came to seek and to save. Go to Luke chapter 5. Luke 5, 27 and following. Jesus calls one of his disciples to follow him in this text. Luke 5, 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors. It's tax collector work party. 
and others reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. Lost people, don't you just, just hear this? Lost people are valuable to Jesus. If you're here, like, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want you to know that you matter to Jesus. No matter how you feel about Jesus, He wants you to know that you're valuable. No matter what your friend or coworker or neighbor thinks about Jesus, Jesus sees them as valuable. Like lost people are valuable to Jesus, valuable enough that he was willing to pursue them, that he was willing to give his life to die to save them. And they're valuable enough to be celebrated when they come home. There's another piece of this story, and this is like the last piece that we need to see that's really important. Verse 7 and verse 10 both, both end with almost the same words. It says, uh, just verse 7, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then in verse 10, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who does what? Who repents. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, religious people and rebellious people are both lost people. Both religious people and rebellious people need to become repentant people. That's the way to relationship with God. We go from lost to found when Jesus pursues us and then we turn to him. And repentance means that. The Greek word metanoia means to, to turn around, to change direction. And it's an interesting word study, and I'm going to go into all of it, but in the Old Testament, it has like a level of meaning, and in intertestamental literature, it has a meaning. And the New Testament authors, when they use that Greek word, actually like develop it even more fully to where before the New Testament, it really meant that like you just had a, your mind got changed, right? Like you just changed your mind about something, and then you started acting differently. As the New Testament, as you study that word used in the New Testament, it means that it changes like everything, when they talk about repentance, the, the word picture is that I'm running away from Jesus and I'm running toward my own self and my own sin. I am lost and I don't even know it. And I'm running as hard as I can toward everything that I think that I want and everything that I think will make me happy. When I'm looking for hope and identity and I'm looking for fulfillment, I'm running toward those things. And repentance is Jesus comes as the shepherd. He pursues me. He puts his hand on my shoulder and I respond, and I turn, my mind is changed, and I realize that those things that I thought brought what I wanted bring nothing, and I turn toward Jesus. And when I turn toward Jesus, I confess my sins. I say, I was running the wrong way, and that wrong way is sin. And I confess my sins, and I turn toward Jesus, and I say, Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins. You rose from the grave, and we start to follow Jesus. That's repentance. And what that does is it doesn't just change your mind. It changes the way you think about things, but it changes your identity. It changes what you value. It changes what you want to pursue. It changes all of your life when we turn away from ourselves and our sin and turn toward Jesus. And that's what he says is necessary, that both religious people and rebellious people need to become, re need to become repentant people. When we repent, Jesus rejoices. Did you know that? Like when we repent, when, when, a, when somebody who's running from Jesus repents and turns toward Jesus, like 
God is excited about that. There's a party in heaven. Religion doesn't bring joy, does it? This is going to be a theme next week, that religion does not bring joy, and rebellion does not bring joy, but repentance brings joy. And so that's the invitation today. And I'll do it a little bit differently. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you're not, like, into church, I'm not going to come by and steal your wallet. One of the ushers will do that. No, I'm just kidding. But go, bow your heads and close your eyes. Because, like, sometimes, and I'm not going to ask you to pray, raise your hand, or do any of that stuff. But I just want to give you a second to think about what God might be saying to you. What the Holy Spirit is, is saying to you. Like, the Holy Spirit takes God's Word and, and applies it differently to different ones of us. It's like maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I, I think I'm kind of like a, I have some religious tendencies. I, I kind of like see people who aren't like me as the bad guys, and I think I'm kind of the good guys. Like I would invite you to repent of that attitude and to like tell Jesus like, hey, I want to see people like you see people, not like the religious leaders did. Maybe you're here and you're like, no, I, I'm more of that rebellious person. As a matter of fact, I, I'm not really interested in Jesus or God or any of those things. I would invite you to repent and turn to Jesus today. To pray right now on your own, quietly, and say, God, I admit that I'm a sinner. And I confess my sin to you. And I turn to Jesus and accept him as my Savior and my Lord. Some of us need to turn to Jesus and some of us need to turn back to Jesus. At the end of the day, I know that God wants us to all be repentant people, and only repentant people will exhibit God's heart for lost people. So I pray right now that God would give us that heart, His heart for those people. God, thank you for the way that your word and your Holy Spirit, uh, that your Holy Spirit uses your word to work in our hearts. God, I pray that through everything that's been said here today, that you would through your Holy Spirit, just take some piece of truth from your word and just push it into each heart that's here. I admit that I, I'm, I tend to be a religious person. And God, sometimes I want to run the other way and be rebellious. I pray that you convict us as we're here this morning. God, help us understand our need for you. God, I pray that you would give us your heart for people who aren't like us, your heart for people that hung out with Jesus that, that don't hang out with us. And you'd give us your heart for lost people. I pray even this week that maybe you would show us that person that you want us to, to love and to, to care for, um, to welcome, maybe to invite over for dinner or whatever it is. Um, but just keep changing our hearts. Um, we're thankful that we have the opportunity every week to look into your word and have our lives exposed to your word. We're thankful that you love us, that you have pursued us, and that for those of us who are, are Christians, there's been a, a celebration in heaven when we placed our faith in you. Remind us of that this week. 